You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, a large container ship was making the trip from North Africa to a port in southern Spain, and the Mediterranean Sea was unusually calm. That day they were making great headway from a distance, all looked well. But the calm seas belied a turbulent climate on board the ship. The ship's captain and the ship's engineer were mired in a deep disagreement. They were locked up in an argument over who was most important to the ship and its operation. And this disagreement had fractured the crew into each of the two camps. And to prove their point to one another, they decided to swap places. The captain descended into the engine room and the chief engineer took over the helm of the ship up on the bridge. And about three hours into this experiment, the captain suddenly appeared on the bridge covered in grease and grime. And he said, Chief, engine one has shut down. I need you to come down. I can't get it up and running again. And the chief engineer turned to the To the captain, he said, Cap, you think you've got it bad. I haven't been able to figure out this stupid navigation system, and we're about to run straight into that island right there. Jealousy, pride, self-importance, discord, chaos. A community in crisis. This was the news about the Corinthian church community that came to the Apostle Paul while he was in Ephesus. The report was not good. The church was disintegrating into various factions, claiming allegiance to specific apostolic leaders, some to Paul, some to Apollos, some to Peter. Others were following some other strange Gnostic leaders that were hovering around that community. Worse still, there was a group of charismatics who claimed special gifts and powers who played spiritual one-upmanship with each other and looked down their noses at everyone else. And others had turned the church's celebration of the Lord's Supper into a drunken orgy. And then there was the specific scandal of the community, a man and his stepmother living together as husband and wife. In other words, all hell was breaking loose in Corinth. The church had completely gone off course. They were shipwrecked. Dead in the water. And so Paul writes him a letter. And it's a letter notably absent of much theology or specific doctrine. He's writing to set things straight. To get them back on course. To rescue them from the perversity of their broken down and shattered community. And to form them once again into a people who are alive together. And reoriented to God's mission in the world. Alive together. That's God's vision of community. And this is week seven of our series, Alive Together. And the thesis of this series is that Jesus has given us to one another and that there's a reciprocal, reciprocal responsibility that we have towards one another that defines a certain distinctiveness of our community, which works itself out in, the, in our life of mission together to love our neighbor. 
And today we're looking at chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can find that passage on page 933 in that black Bible in the pew in front of you. And in this passage, Paul takes a bit of a literary pivot. Up to this point, he's been very been, been giving very specific instructions that are meant to correct the twisted practices that the Corinthian community had adopted. But starting here in this chapter, chapter 12, he takes on the deep spiritual pathology that has fractured their community and has created so much strife. Here in this chapter, he creates a bigger frame of community. He paints a picture. He provides an image for them and for us of what community might look like. So turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to start reading at verse 12. You can follow along. I'll read through verse 26. Listen to God's word. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. And the be, indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we close with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our most respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. This notion of the church as the body of Christ is one of Paul's primary metaphors when he talks about the church. He deploys it in many of his letters, but perhaps no more so than here in 1 Corinthians. And as we move through this passage, I think there are three core ideas, three central themes that suggest what it might be like to be the body together. And those three themes are identity, significance, and anxiety. Identity, significance, and anxiety that give us a sense of what it means to be Christ's body alive together. Well, first, if I'm reading this correctly, it seems that the body is formed by the life of the Holy Spirit. Paul Paul points to baptism in this passage as the birthing point of the body. Baptism marks the beginning point of transformation. And baptism is essentially about identity. 
receiving a new identity. In other words, the things of life that once shaped us and with which we aligned ourselves no longer claim the center. They no longer determine our trajectory. The person of Jesus and his gift of redeemed and reoriented life claims the new center. And through the Spirit, it is his life in us that forms us, and it is his mission that claims us and calls us and directs us. And while this conversion of identity is personal and individual, the journey of transformation is not. You know, our culture tries to package Jesus as merely a great philosopher or a profound moral teacher, as if Jesus can be boundaried to some rigid religion. But Jesus didn't leave us with an abstract set of moral and political principles that we could just kind of huddle in a little room and try to abide by. But what Jesus did is he left us with himself, the spirit of himself, and a way of life that is rooted in a community. You and I are forever linked in continuity to that small band of men and women to whom Jesus breathed his spirit upon and said, As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. We are members of a body whose purpose and mission is a response to Jesus' invitation of follow me, which gets lived out not in a moral code or a disembodied spiritual philosophy, but in the actual personal encounters in which men and women who have themselves been called to Jesus invite others also to follow him. That way of life can only happen in community. There's an old story of, about Dwight L. Moody. He was a, a famous pastor, an evangelist, a preacher, a publisher, a national Christian leader of the late 19th century. And there's a story about him making a visit to the home of a prominent Chicago businessman. And while there, the man said to Moody, he said, I believe I can be just as good a Christian without the church as I can be with it. And Moody just sat there for a moment in silence, letting that statement just kind of hang in the air. And then he got up and he went over to the fireplace and he took some fireplace tongs and reached into that raging fire in that fireplace and grabbed one kind of coal, one big burning ember. And he pulled that out and he set that alongside the fireplace. And then he sat back down. And the two men sat there in silence as they watched that hot burning coal slowly die out. And after a few more moments, the man said, I'll see you in church on Sunday. We no longer belong to ourselves, but to Jesus. And whether we like it or not, Jesus gives us to one another. We need one another to live into our transformed identity. Well, moving on in this passage, in this section, verses 14 through 23, it seems to me that Paul is having a little fun. He begins to unpack this metaphor of Christian community as Christ's body with some whimsical anatomical, anatomical um, scenarios. 
At the point, and the point that he's making here is that the body is perfectly designed as a unit made up of diverse and distinct members who each have a unique role in maintaining the body's function and its mission. And the point of these silly scenarios is to reflect back upon the Corinthian church how imbalanced and twisted their life together had become. Paul makes the point that each member of the body matters. And through this analogy, he asserts that each of us in the body of Christ is significant. Every single member has a part to play. And while each of us is significant, none of us is disproportionately important in and of ourselves. It's our relationship to one another as the body, and it is our life engaged in the mission of the community that makes our contribution and our role meaningful. Paul asserts that the Holy Spirit designs and choreographs a community that lives in the creative tension of interdependence, where the diversity of the community's members are woven together in unity towards the mission of loving God and loving neighbor. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm still kind of living in the afterglow of the Seahawks Super Bowl victory. Anybody else there, there with me? What an incredible team! What an amazing collection of relatively unexceptional players. You know, if you think about it, not a single one of those guys could have said that they were the best at their position when John Schneider and Pete Carroll drafted them. Not a single one of them could say with any integrity that at the time that they were drafted, that they were the best player at their position. In fact, that's kind of been the storyline about the Seahawks, right? Here's a collection of third, fifth, and seventh round nobodies that have been crafted into NFL champions. It was the spirit of that kind of one-for-all mentality that was offended when Richard Sherman delivered his rant at that post-game interview after the NFL championship. Kimber and I were watching with some of our neighbors, our good friends in the neighborhood, and As we witnessed Sherman's tirade, we sat there kind of feeling sick to our stomachs. Now, that might have had something to do with the five tacos and the mountain of chips and salsa that I had just eaten. But nevertheless, we sat there feeling deeply disappointed. He offended the spirit of the team. And the good thing is he knew it. In that tirade, Sherman had put himself at the center, had put himself above the team. He was saying, in effect, because I am a hand, that great outstretched hand, I don't need the ear. I don't need the arm. I don't need the pancreas. I don't need the heart. He quickly, fortunately, realized what he had done and later made his heartfelt apologies. And of course, we forgave him. We love Richard Sherman. You know, none of these players were significant to the team in and of themselves alone. They became great when they yielded their abilities and giftedness to the vision of the coach. They accepted their individual roles, submitted themselves to the mission of the team, and together they became champions. And and Paul tells us that we're significant in relationship with one another. We are Christ's body, interconnected, fit together, diverse in our gifts and in the various roles that we play, and yet unified and joined together by the head coach. 
engaged in his mission in the world. Well, moving on in the passage to the end of this passage, verses 24 through 26, Paul asserts a very critical element to this community metaphor. And that element is care, care for one another. The lifeblood of a community, the element that restores and renews and uplifts and sustains a community is the care that members give to one another. You know, you can have something that is beautifully designed to diverse parts, working together in unity. But without authentic care, what you have is something more like a robot than an organic living body. It's the care. It's the care of one another that creates true community. And it is this distinguishing gift of care that Christ's spirit engenders in a community of believers that contrasts so dramatically with the world that is driven and defined by rugged individualism. Now Paul employs an interesting word here from the Greek when describing this care for one another in this passage. It's the same word that we find Jesus using at the end of Matthew 6. It's the word for anxiety. Now, in the case of Matthew 6, Jesus uses it negatively. He tells his disciples, don't, do not be anxious. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul calls the community to anxiety for one another. And if you think about it, anxiety is a unique an intense way of caring for one another. To be anxious for another person is a form of compassion. It's, it's a form of entering into the life of the other. It's occupying a distinct place of solidarity. It's as if we're called to be deeply invested in each other's giftedness and each other's destiny. As a parent, I've experienced this form of anxious caring for my children numerous times. I can remember when uh, our son Sam was, a, was a playing Little League Baseball at 11 or 12 years old. And Sam would sometimes play shortstop and sometimes he'd play first base. But the most dreaded position that Sam got called upon to play, at least for Kimber and I as his parents, any idea? Pitcher. Pitcher. He got called upon to play pitcher all the times. And oh my gosh, the anxiety of watching him play, pick, pay, play pitcher. The agony over every pitch. The elation when a batter swung and missed. And the outrage when the umpire called a brilliantly thrown curveball that caught the outside of the plate a ball. Now let's be clear, a 12-year-old can't throw a perfectly brilliant curveball over the outside of the plate. But you know our pride took over our imagination. And we were seeing things that just didn't actually happen. But nevertheless, <laughs> our love for our son was so intense that every time Sam pitched, we were in a state of deep anxiety. It was as if we were on the mound with him throwing every pitch. Well, Paul calls us to be anxious for one another, to care so deeply that we enter into each other's lives, that we come alongside in solidarity, that we suffer together in the sufferings, and that we celebrate the honors, the achievements, the accomplishments. I have the privilege of being in a men's small group with seven others. Sometimes I have to pinch myself because these guys are so extraordinary. I'm wondering, what am I doing there? 
These are guys of of deep personal relationship with Jesus. Men who are committed to their wives and families and who are engaged in their work and in their ministry motivated by the notion that through the animation of the Holy Spirit that they're actually agents of God's mission in the world. And And over the past two years now, as we've been on this journey of community together, we've developed this unique aspect of care for one another. At any given time, one or more of us is dealing with some difficult family or professional challenge or some transition that one of us is going through. And we've grown to be anxious for one another, to show up and to speak into one another's lives in solidarity. Between meetings, we are faithful in support of regular prayer. It's as if we feel responsible for the other. As if we feel as though a sense of stewardship for each other's lives. When one of us is struggling with uncertainty or discouragement, we remind him of his gifts and of his convictions. We we become a band of brothers. And it's a rare and extraordinary gift. And it's in the journey together that we become who it is we are designed to become. And we grow deeper in our love for God and our love for neighbor. And I'm guessing that many of you, too, experience that same thing in your small groups. You know, George has invented a word for this. He calls it formational community. You will not find this term in any dictionary. No matter how many times you type the word formational, it will always have a red squiggly line under it. Every time. And at the heart of this term is the idea that as we live in authentic community together, we are being transformed to live for the world. In other words, it is through being alive together that the Holy Spirit shapes us for mission. And as we love our neighbor and engage the world around us, the Holy Spirit takes that experience and we are shaped by God's mission. Now, in a little over a month from now, we'll be sending a group of our high school students, some parent volunteers, some of our youth sponsors that are engaged in ministry with the youth, and some of our youth staff, and they'll be heading off to Tijuana, Mexico to spend a week in that community to build houses. And it seems to me that this youth mission is an exceptional illustration of formational community. So I asked Randy Brothers, who is our director of youth mission and ministry, if he would just share about what that experience looks like over the course of that week. And this is what he wrote. It's absolutely amazing. Listen, Randy says, I often start out the week with a small pile of lumber by me. In a five-gallon bucket with some nails, a hammer, a level, some other tools, etc. It doesn't look like much, and in all its pieces, it doesn't add up to much for a family. But when together, as a community, we put our heart into it, our sweat into it, our brains and our love for each other and the family that we're building for, well, it becomes something beautiful. It becomes a home. Because we are the body of Christ in a very real way in that neighborhood, something miraculous can happen. As we proceed through the week, we often point to how the house is coming together as a mirror to who we are. As we come together more and more as a community with a purpose and a mission. 
And then Randy unpacks the week of how it progressed. He says on Sunday, the team clears the site, makes it level, and prepares to build something new. And it's not a stretch to see how this can apply to their own life and the community that is emerging among them. On Monday, they lay the foundation. The foundation doesn't always look like much, but if the dimensions and the levelness of it aren't done right, then the whole building process going forward will be challenged. It all starts with pouring ourselves into making that foundation. Tuesday involves putting up the walls. Measure once, measure twice, cut once. Not measure once, cut twice. That would be, that would make a mess of a house. Measure twice, cut once. Patience and cooperation are required. Something new starts to form. Comes right out of the ground. Looks amazing when the walls start to stand up and you can imagine a real house. Wednesday, they finish up the walls, start the roof. And oftentimes, the team has really hit their stride at this point, And the sense of camaraderie and solidarity is high. Finishing the roof and other final touches consume Thursday and Friday. And towards the end of the day, Friday, comes the big moment when the team hands over the keys to that front door to the family. It's an aha moment, he says where the realization sets in that something has changed in them, in their community, and that they are connected to this family in a way that they could never have anticipated or expected at the beginning of that week. The family that they have built for is now a part of their extended family. What an incredible experience. A community formed for mission and a community Changed by mission. Did you hear all the formational moments in that account? All the places where they were transformed by their experience of living in mission together? Together they were shaped for loving their neighbor, and together they were being shaped by loving their neighbor. That's formational community. Now we don't have to make a trip to Tijuana to have that similar experience. We are all invited into the experience of a small group community here at UPC. That is the place where this experience of formational community can actually happen. You know, Lent is right here, right on our doorstep, right around the corner. And if you're not currently in a small group, I cannot recommend it more highly. I cannot recommend more highly that you would receive the invitation and get yourself plugged in. Jesus calls us to himself, and then he gives us to one another. We are his body, empowered, equipped, together, to join him in his healing mission. Alive in Christ, alive together, living for the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling us into your body, for calling us and transforming us in our identity and giving us to one another, helping us to realize our significance in relationship to one another and inspiring us to be anxious for one another, stewarding each other's lives. God, this is the community that you've called us to. Help us to live into it and then call us forth Uh, from it to love our neighbor. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.